Tonight on Arena, Avatar The Way of Water and Emancipation are among the movies up for review and a new documentary on Inish Buffin singer Desi O'Halloran. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena tonight. In our film reviews is Avatar: The Way of Water, a worthy sequel to one of the biggest box office smashes of all time. Will Smith stars as the indomitable slave whipped Peter in the Civil War era Emancipation, and forty years on from its original release, Ingmar Bergman's reimagining of the Hamlet story, Fanny and Alexandra, is re-released. Joining us to discuss this week's films are Tara Brady and Justin McGregor, and we will start with Avatar: The Way <laughs> of Water. And I can already hear the snorting in the background about this. Okay, let us let us set up what we need to know about Avatar. Number one. Before we get into Avatar number two, the way of water. Just oh, who remembers Avatar number one? <laughs> <laughs> well, if I remember what little plot there was, so the the sky people, which are the humans, have been sent back to Earth, and a few have stayed, and the Navi, the people, have successfully, I guess, won back their planet uh, with their with their few human allies, and that really sort of sums up all two hours and forty five minutes of the first film, right. and then we go into this film, we get about thirty minutes of a narrated voiceover telling us what's happened in the 15 sort of-ish years that have passed. And it's just Jake Sully telling us this happened and this happened and you learn this and you realise that and the other thing. And you get about 20 or 30 minutes of that. And then you get a little tiny action bit. And then they go down to the coast. They they flee the humans that have re-arrived. And we get a kind of National Geographic film for about 90 minutes about the way of water, which is said twice in case you miss it, one of the two times it's said. And then we have a battle at the end. All right. I, I'm getting a certain impression from your delivery that perhaps this was not the most entertaining couple of hours you had in the cinema. Uh, Sam Worthington gives us the voiceover at the beginning. Is it is it really Tara, 30 minutes of exposition. Is that it's, what we're it's, it's 30 minutes of that. We're in our, it's, it's, it's so random in terms of storytelling. I mean, James Cameron has never been blessed with the greatest year for dialogue. Um, they, you know, there's some absolute like howlers, even in Titanic, you know, like, you know, paint me like one of your French girls. I mean, there's just, but there's, I mean, but still, like, I mean, he can usually graph together, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's directed Terminator. He, he, he can bang together a story, even if people sound stupid in that story. Um, there's, no, there's, no, there's this just keeps throwing things at you randomly. So we're 90 minutes in before we get an action sequence of any kind. Before that, it's just been people doing the the National Geographic thing. Is just to say, like the, you know, they're marveling at a tree that they live beside. I mean, you know, they walk by the tree every day. But hey, um, and and then then we have. As about you know, sort of two hours in, we we learn that the 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 kind of cod Polynesian culture that we that we're now in the middle of, um, they have sister whales and the whales are very precious to their culture. And then half an hour later, whalers arrive and we discover that the whales are being hunted for I don't know something. It's, I can't even remember what was it like balonium so it's rubbish. It stops aging in humans. It's called balonium. No, I'm just. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I think it was close to that. It, it was, was like pretty Ambrosia. close to that. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was pretty bad. Okay. But 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 none of these, by the way, have anything to do with the 
overarching plot, which is really about the family unit. And, and about the family unit, it, it, the Jake Sully character played by Sam Worthington, stayed on the uh, island the last time after yeah. Avatar 1 and he became, uh, he married or whatever yeah. they do in this particular culture, Neteri, the Zoe Saldana character. Yeah. And they now have a brood of... Yeah, they now have they now have three children and an adopted child, all of whom are just, he's just, the, he, this is like the worst fa- parenting I've ever seen. It, it's actually really disturbing. It's like this kind of very 50s patriarchal style of parenting where all of the children have to call him sir at all times. I mean, at some, you know, at some point his wife goes, they're not a military unit, but that lesson doesn't ever seem to be taken on board. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, they have no right of reply, which I think is a really horrible message to put in a film that's rated 12A and that conceivably kids could go to. So like he's the authority figure. Mm-hmm. Even if they do, if, the, if, if they are reprimanded, if they are chastised, they have no right of reply. They can't go, oh yeah, but this happened. They're just like, no, you've done it. And he'll just say really like brutalising things yeah. like, haven't you done enough? <laughs> it's just, it's it's completely bonkers. And it's because there's the, the father of the, the head of the, the coastal people. He is a son who's being disobedient. And there's a scene where both of them aren't allowed to talk. And then they leave the scene and they both knew something that was really important for the two dads to know. And someone goes, let's go back and tell them. It's like, like why didn't they just listen to you in the first place? Like it is one of those kind of after school special sort yeah. of bad parenting uh, yeah, except, except, but no, normally, like bad Are parents, you? like we saw Matilda recently, yeah. and the whole point of having bad parents in that film is that the li- little girl has agency. She, you know, you can stand yeah. up to the biggest bullies, and that tends to be the message of anything that has a so family suitable bo- rating. Yeah, you're so both suggesting that because really I sinister. because I say so is not a good parenting. No, 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 no. <laughs> not and always. The sir, the yes, sir. Like you almost expected oh, yeah, Sam yeah. Worthington's character to say, "Listen, Beaver," you know, at some point in there. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let them drop the sir from tomorrow from today onwards then. <laughs> they don't have to kneel anymore. Yeah. So, okay, I get the impression that it's a bit of a mess in terms of, and there's an awful lot of nothing happening for an awful long time. But what I do remember from Avatar is I do remember these amazing kind of special effects and the, you know, Zoe Zaldana's character kind of bouncing along and then flying up into the air and, and Sam Worthington's character learning how to do that. I do remember that visual aspect. Is there some? Are there some? No, good I, I, I did. I, I know there might be some disagreement here, yes, but really. I did find that there's kind of this middle National Geographic. I don't know National Geographic kind of section in the middle. It could be on you know Planet Earth three, whatever Pandora, mm. and and I really liked it. I mean, he really does some amazing stuff with water. I mean, anyone who saw the Abyss, which he he created mm. all this technology to be able to film yeah. underwater, and it, he he really does some amazing things, and it is beautiful. You just to really sort of sit back and watch and absorb and 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 see the fish and and the whale stuff is a little complicated, but it's also sort of very interesting. So I really did like that. I think people will find that that retread of learning more about Pandora works really really well. Yeah, okay, and, and the fact that he calls it the way of water, your bursting, beer bursting, But the fact that he calls it the way of water, I, I'm getting the impression perhaps he said the way of water because he thought I have some great technology now that means I can <laughs> do stuff on underwater. The money, but like the thing is, is that it's one thing to do all these amazing things with water but when we get to the end of the water we get this kind of greatest hits look they're on a sinking ship remember that um, and then and then we have it all builds up to an MMA fight underwater where they're like trying to choke each other out because it's it's a film that's made up of all these kind of absurd male ris- rituals like you know it's you know it's like watching like people trying to wee higher than, against against okay. a wall for, for three hours but the other thing I found with the visuals and this is if we remember the, the Hobbit when it went for that 48 frame 
per second f- speed rate mm-hmm. and everyone felt like slightly motion sick. They've done this here and everybody agreed at that point we're going to retire the 48 pre- because it, because yeah. even though it's faster than the eye can really perceive, it's, it makes this 450, in the case of Avatar 2, this $450 million movie look like a wedding video from 1989. It has that really oh, horrible yeah. kind of cheap and nasty glare off it but it also has the thing like sometimes you're kind of looking away because it makes you slightly okay. nauseous. We've mentioned um, Sam Worthington. We've mentioned Zoe Saldana. Uh, Sigourney Weaver is in here as well. What's she, what's she <laughs> she's doing? She's in a box. But she's an immaculate conception. What All these things are being dropped for the next three movies. We have You have to really understand okay. that the first hour is doing several things, not just setting you up for a movie, but for the future. So there's a thing dropped in there that if, if people remember Sigourney Weaver's character was in an avatar and she died um, at the end. Well, somehow her avatar was pregnant. And her avatar gives birth to a, a baby girl. A miracle and that baby, baby girl, girl. A miracle baby girl. Yeah, and that miracle baby girl powers. is Sigourney Weaver, being played by Sigourney Weaver, doing a kind of younger sort of voice of herself. But none of that is ever probed because that is clearly for a future movie. So All we, right, well, this, we know she has powers, but... This clip that I'm going to play then is probably the trailer for Avatar 3. <laughs> it's hard, will be. Let's have a listen Hooray. to Sigourney Weaver in human form in a scene from Avatar, The Way of Water. Kiri is her character's name. Maybe I'm just losing it out here, but I'm seeing real evidence of a systemic response on a global level. I can't... I won't use the term intelligence. It's, it's, um... Maybe awareness is a better word. It's, it's like the entire biosphere of Pandora is aware and capable of this cognitive response. Uh, I'm sorry, I was just, as we were listening to that, I was listening to the beautiful musical atmosphere that was created and the beautiful (laughs) underwater feel. I'm clutching desperately at straws here. 192 minutes. 192 (laughs) minutes. 192 minutes long. Okay, that's, that's a long sit. That's mm-hmm. three and hours and mm-hmm. and, and it's a long hundred and ninety two minutes. I mean, some of the the Lord of the Rings were close to that, but they were a fast three hours. This is Stuff not happened. This is yeah. not a fast three hours. Okay, uh, is there any? Are there any saving graces here at no, all? No, but there are plenty of other things that I that I can <laughs> use to to throw. I mean, the the women characters. It's worth my are uh, you know it's it's sort of. Dances with Fishwives stuff. Um, we have like, I mean, why hire in an Oscar-winning actor like Kate Winslet? Yeah, I was going to ask, what is she doing here? Uh, well, she's she's one of the cod Polynesian um, people, and like, but she but she's doing that sort of voice that they retired from westerns in the fifties in Hollywood, like that sort of you know, meum native big chief wife sort of thing. That's just like, what are you actually doing? This is this is pretty bad. And then then the then the other issue is this: we have like, if you remember, like, and this is always a problem. With the first film, there was a lot of criticism about the kind of white saviour narrative that it's like yeah. the, the typical dances with wolves thing of like the guy comes in and he's a better Native American than the Native Americans. And and this time around, having mastered being like a better Native American, now they're kind of better, the entire family are better Polynesians than the Polynesians are. And there's So it's a really problematic okay. film on all sorts of levels. Justin, have, have you any little, you, you, no, you kind of liked the look of it. I, I really did like the look of it. We were talking about this earlier because I, I think it depends really where you sit in the cinema. I really do with the 48 frames. I was second last row and Tara was much, much closer to the front. Because yeah. I didn't get the wedding video thing. I thought it looked like beautiful IMAX stuff of Tahiti and Fiji. I, I really enjoyed it. There I, only I, are so many kind of second last and last rows yeah, <laughs> in the cinema. I know, I know. I know. We're, bear in mind, we're in screen 17 in uh, the IMAX theater 
theatre in on top of Cineworld. So it's the biggest cinema in art. So halfway back is actually quite a bit back. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I but don't know. Maybe if you watched it from the moon, it might <laughs> look good. But I, and I, found the, I thought the effects were amazing. I mean, the 3D I found amazing. I mean, the effects, it, it, you forget what you're watching that it's it seems so real and it's it okay. should be a cartoon and it's not like it is technically it's a masterpiece he's amazing at the technical side of filmmaking you I mean, do need is. a bit of an old story in there too yeah. so you can watch it from the moon would the stars you'd be looking at from the moon be the only ones you'd be given to this giving to this uh, I'll, I'll, the, st- I'll stretch to a generous one a generous one a generous one <laughs> okay and that's because it's Christmas okay yeah what are you saying Justin well see I think I think it's the kind of like everything I think some people are going to be ecstatic that there's a sequel some people are going to dread that there's a sequel and it is somehow it is both films it is like one and five stars sort of mixed in there. I don't even know how he's accomplished that. I wonder if watching it, if he does make the next three, watching them all in a row, if it will be better in its entirety, but I fear not. We didn't even mention all the kids talk, saying buzz and Oh yeah, they keep saying and bro, bro and cause. Every other word is bro and making you and think cause. you're watching an American coming of age film. So it, it is problematic. So I went with, uh, I, what I said was, if you think, it's two and a half stars and if you turn your brain off, it's four. All right. I, I don't know whether to go to it or not. And I, I, if they do put all four or five together at three hours and so each, I'm, I'm going to ask you to go to oh, the yeah. target just, <laughs> just to hear your I response. I want to your money. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think we're fairly clear. Well, kind of clear on where you both stand on Avatar The Way of Water. Let's move on to film number two. Uh, Emancipation opens in Louisiana in 1863 with the Civil War raging and Haitian-born slave Peter, played by Will Smith, being dragged away from his wife. Take it from there. Uh, what what are we getting here, Tara? So what we're getting is like th- there's obviously a very famous image that this film is built around it, and uh, the the man's name is Gordon, or sometimes he's called Whip Peter because, mm. as we know, names among slaves could be very nebulous, you know, yeah. through you know for for various reasons. And he was an escaped American slave, and at the point where at the point where like slavery is about to be repealed, and he's the he was the subject of um, 1863 photographs that were really shown all around the world. Um, and he, he has those just, just they're absolutely horrifying um, uh, whip scars um, across his back um, that, you know, have like calloused up um, into ketoid scars. Mm-hmm. That, and like they're, so they're, they're really quite sizable and, and very, very disturbing to, to look at. So this film is, is based around really that image and, and the story of, of the man in that photograph. Um, now, the film they've tried to build around it is, is quite ambitious because it's they've gone for it's a little bit Django Unchained in that Mm. like in some ways it's clearly trying to reference it's clearly trying to reference more kind of modern politics than the period it's it's set in Um, and we have Will Smith playing Peter and he's he's doing the the full kind of Bayou accent all the way through Um, and it's it's shot in very very stark black and white which is a very strange thing for Antoine Fuqua I mean he's he's a very uh, a very cultured guy when you meet him but he tends to be he's best known for like his kind of really kind of sl- slick sort of Hollywood thrillers and he, he's mm. not someone you'd expect to be necessarily working in in monochrome so you have this film that's like that's um that that is is about a slave escaping and and it it basically turns into one of those kind of very survivalist type films like Mel Gibson's Apocalyptico right. where you're focusing on his body and you're focusing on the injuries and you're focusing on him running and hiding in really dangerous situations 
So a lot of it's quite divorced from the actual politics of the situation that he's in. But at the same time, it's also trying to be a political film. Yeah. So it's a, a strange sort of marriage of oh, things. Well, I, the scene that I have, uh, I think, plays into what you just said. Will Smith as Peter here, obviously. And he encounters another escaped slave. They're both on the run at this point in time. And that slave has advice for him on how to throw the dogs off the scent. And I think it involves the use of an onion, as we will hear. You have led dogs to me. I have done nothing. I will shoot you. No, no, no. No, no. No. Dogs cannot smell. Take it. Take it. You are mad! To hell with you! That's a, a scene from Emancipation, Will Smith uh, in the midst of that, playing the character of Peter. This is obviously a, a, a very important subject and we're dealing with a, a real-life uh, incident set of images, as Tara has pointed out to us. You want to handle that very carefully, Justin, I would have thought. How is it handled here? Well, it's just, it, it is an odd choice. Like, the, there's a lot of different genres going on. I mean, there's this kind of, there's a, a little bit of 12 Years a Slave, mm-hmm. a little bit kind of mm-hmm. a biography. And then, yeah, Apocalypto would be, then there's this kind of Chase Apocalypto sort of part of it. Uh, and then there's this sort of uh, Paths of Glory, All Quiet on the Western Front, mm-hmm. anti-war, almost Apocalypse Now, kind of in its view of the horrors and terrors of war, beautifully filmed. I mean, it was, in Paths of Glory, it was the Steadicam. Here it's the drone on these incredible sort of battlefields mm-hmm. that they have going but everything's handled really delicately but it just doesn't quite come together to make like a really sort of strong or solid point and that clip's really interesting because I was trying to figure out how much he actually kind of spoke in the film like there wasn't really much you know not necessarily speech making but even just getting points of view yeah. You know, there was one attempt with Ben Foster, who's the, the sort of the lead hunter. He gets to give a big story about like why he treats uh, you know black people this way, and it doesn't really actually go anywhere. Not like say Ray Fiennes' character, so much more complex in Schindler's List. Mm. And there's also echoes of Schindler's List all through this mm. too. So it has this kind of weird yeah. combination of influences that don't just kind of quite yeah you know, very reverential, but not. So, so the, the, there's the, the obviously the, the story of I suppose the macro story which mm-hmm. is slavery in and of itself but then there's the family story uh, of the Peter character played by Will Smith and his wife Dodie and played by Charmaine Bingwa do we get much of that story or, or what, what is that we do but it's very, it's, it's very much a framing thing and I mean and I think like when you look at something like 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 12 Years a Slave the, the idea that someone can just suddenly come in and break up your family or take mm-hmm. your children mm-hmm. or like you know or you know or, or marry somebody off to somebody else is so horrifying and I don't think it is as horrifying here and also they sort of cop out of like going anywhere with it it's a suggestion but then it doesn't actually happen and you were not in agreement when when Justin was talking about the several uh, genres that are uh, yeah. kind of within is that part of the problem that they haven't kind of said here's the film we yeah. want to make I, th- I think it's too ambitious I think it's trying to do too many things it, it, and, and some of those things contradict each other and in some sense it feels like it just wants to be be a straight mm. exci- like a straight chase movie a straight thriller where you're like you know where you're chasing people through swamps and and I think that in some ways that's the strongest part of the film I, and I think that as beautiful as like the war scenes are they're not they feel like they belong in an entirely different film yeah. it feels like something that maybe 
should have been a mini series or so, you know it, it should have either been longer or it should have been shorter and uh, is it is it is there a touch of the one man show here is it basically the Will Smith performance yeah I mean the, 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 what you're saying about the family when he's in the swamp and you know and, and suffering because it's really horrific mm-hmm. I mean the, the, the mud and the feel of the swamp is really visceral it's really mm-hmm. really haptic and really really well done and then they'll flash back to like him remembering his family almost to remind the audience that these are the stakes and this is what's going on so yeah it's very much focused on on him kind of like uh, uh, you know Castaway right. like he has to carry a lot okay. of it just on his expressions and he doesn't even have you know Wilson to talk to you know so it's very Joseph hard Warren. for him but I think it doesn't quite come together it's not 12 years a slave it's you know it, it, it's not Amistad it doesn't quite reach those kind of heights unfortunately so, stars look it's really really worthy I really wanted it to be better uh, I got over <laughs> it was hard to watch Will Smith and not think yeah. about the slap for a while yeah. uh, but eventually you know and the accent's a bit difficult uh, like not well done but uh, it, I just really wanted it to be better it wasn't so I gave it two and a half and what are you saying Tara overall I think it's a little bit better than that. I think I think it's just a film that doesn't quite come together. Um, like the references are there, the, and you can see, oh, well, this is like this, and this is like this, but it, but it isn't quite like its own thing, and it's never quite like its own thing. Um, I think it's three. It's three, but it's, there's there's a, a worthy attempt in yeah, there somewhere. Definitely. Just didn't get definitely. to where, where it wanted to go. Okay, hardly a new release. This Fanny and Alexander, I suppose, considered one of Ingmar Bergman's greatest films. Justin, and it's a kind of a version of the the, the Hamlet story, if you like. But uh, it's an, its initial cinema release was already a cut down version. So just give us a little bit of that backstory. It was a television series of how long? Yeah, it was five. It was five hours long. So originally, originally it was meant to be his last film in Sweden. That's what he mm. said. I mean, he did a few things afterwards, but this was kind of his big. He didn't say it was semi autobiographical, but he drew a lot on his own family history. You know, his father was a, was Eric was a was a Lutheran minister, and we'll talk about the bishop, I'm sure, in a little bit. So the, the original plan was the big swan song. He got six million dollars at the time, which was a huge budget in Sweden. In you know, in 1981, they filmed for six months, which was an extraordinary long time again in 1981 mm. and he made this it was five one hour parts for Swedish television and then it was cut down which really pained him it was cut down to 188 minutes so three hours and eight minutes for it's a theatrical than release Avatar, however yeah. yeah it is shorter <laughs> and uh, uh, and of course did incredibly well you know got him a best yeah. director nomination the cinematography awards and uh, and the film itself so what are we getting here then Tara are we getting just a re-release of that cut down cinema version or has it been Oh re-cut yeah, no, it, no, it, ha- it, no, it has been remastered. Like it's, it's mm. all in like it's like it's, a, it's a, like a proper sort of fortieth anniversary where it's like you know cleaned and, and looking looking splendid. But it is the same edit as it were. Yeah, it, yeah. yeah, it's it's the it's the it's the it's the short edit as opposed to the long one. But it's uh, we, we, you know, which is not to say that it's particularly short. But you don't. I mean, it, and it's funny, and it, it doesn't matter which version you're watching. Fanny Alexander is one of those films you just absolutely cast a spell. You you're from the moment it starts you're you're in mm. and it's a very it's a very sort of strange thing there's all the it's strange sort of world it feels almost very ghostly like in the, in the very opening scene we have Alexander who's you know the surrogate for for the younger Bergman like he runs in and he's looking for his he's looking for his um, sister in in like empty rooms and it always it always feels like this sort of like strange sort of fairy tale in a way and like right down to the point where like the the, the children when they're when they're leaving the house at the end we won't say 
take to, mm. to, to, to too much again. I mean, that's pure, like the stuff, like pure kind of Hansel and Gretel stuff in, in a way. Um, but then there's an awful lot of Hamlet going on as well, because a lot of it's about this very, very scary, unwanted stepfather. Um, because because very early on in the film, the father, who's also this kind of mysterious figure, he's an, he's an actor and his the parents run a successful, moderately successful theatre. They're very cultured people. There's all these kind of like um, very talky relatives, all of them in mm. like horrible marriages. But, you know, to paraphrase Tolstoy, each, each, each of the marriages is horrible in different ways. And, but, and you know, so, so the kids are, you know, listening to like, the, like all this kind of chatter in the house. Uh, but the mother anyway seeks, you know, sort of solace not long after the father's death in the arms of, of this bishop. He's a Lutheran uh, minister who's modelled on Bergman's own um, yeah. own father and he is he is <laughs> quite well he, he'll give Sam Worthington a run for his money <laughs> oh in terms of the you're, you're nodding in agreement this is in terms of his paternalistic oh, or he, chauvinistic parenting oh he's a, he's just unbelievable I mean he you know, he, he and it's all in, in the name of piety I mean beating yeah. you know beating Alexander locking him in the attic you know all in the name of kind of this this, this sort mm. of religious mania I guess that he feels but he's absolutely terrifying because his power within the community is almost unquestionable as a bishop and even the wife when she talks about leaving he's like I will ru- you know I will destroy yeah. your life you know if you ever leave me and he's just terrifying like a monster yeah. it's abs- like in a monster film unbelievable and did so. Bergman get the cast he wanted to was it was it his regulars originally it no, wasn't it, it was actually written like so, so the the mother and the bishop were supposed to be played by Liv Ullman who's you know was was wife and and Max von Sydow was another and but apparently there was some strange mix up with with um, with Max von Sydow's um, cast or his his agent um, or his management and and then like and then Ullman didn't and it's interesting like the people he does good because they're people he did work with um, but but the Ava Frawling and, and Jan Malmso but they're 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 much maybe much better because they haven't um, they're not as experienced with Bergman and they're not right. they're not mm. as kind of accustomed to being Bergman's um, surrogates um, and I think it's just, because they're sort of slightly unfamiliar in the Bergman setting it gives them a sort of freshness but it also gives the bishop a, a, a little bit more power okay. and because he's he's so unfamiliar to you, and also because he really believes in what he's doing. I think like there's that there's that thing where he's like going, he's explaining that what everything he does is out of love because his love is har- strong and harsh. Uh, does uh, does it stand up? Uh, whatever, where 1981 to now, 40 something years later, does it stand up and is it still well worth the the viewing? Oh, it's it's absolutely timeless. I mean, you, like you can just you can go back to it at any time. It, it's just always yeah. worth. Worth watching. Uh, it's really magical. And um, five. I have no question about that. And your man, what, what, what about for you, Justin? Yeah, no, I mean, it's amazing because, you know, Spielberg does that kind of child's POV thing, but he wants the audience to see what the child does. Whereas Alexander's POV, we see what Alexander is missing about all yeah, these adults and all the family yeah. members. And Bergman it's is, horrifying, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. what is really kind of going on. And yeah, all set up from this Christmas scene and these puppet shows, it's all kind of meta in that sort of way. It's, it's fabulous. It's still a fabulous film. It holds up. Uh, for sure <laughs> I saw it when I was a teenager I don't know why I saw it as a teenager my, my mother had just remarried and the bishop terrified me <laughs> to this day uh, ma- easy. just five stars of course five stars that's a it's bit meta nice. as well Nigel yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay um, um, briefly uh, you wanted to mention I think the Dublin Critics Circle um, 
Tara, something wonderful that has yes, happened. Yes. So, so for the for the for, so the the Dublin Film Critics Circle, um, for the first time in its oh, I can't even remember how long ago we started. Mm. I think it's sixteen years old now. But for the first time, we have an Irish film has won both Best Irish Film and Best International Film, and that film, unsurprisingly, is um, on Colin Kuhn. Um, yeah. So it 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 really and it really did. Yeah. I can tell you as the person who I'm president of the Critics Circle, which you imagine means that I get to speak to people on balcon- from balconies or everything, but actually it just means I get to count the votes and it takes up a really, really long time. And I also get to chair fights at film festivals and things. But um, but but no, it, it won by, by, by quite a bit. Right. Colin Farrell also won by quite a bit Best Actor. Um, yeah. uh, so it, it, it was, it, yeah, it was it was a really right. good year, I think. Okay, well, well done, Tom Colin Keane. I think everybody is absolutely hopping about it this year and I'm sure it'll be in all the best end, end of year best lists. No question about that. And let's hope and hope and keep fingers crossed for the Oscars for it uh, in the new year. Uh, Tara Brady and Justin McGregor, thank you for that. At the age of 62, singer and musician musician Desi O'Halloran stepped onto the big stage for the first time as he was introduced. 5,000 rose to their feet. And what did he say? Hello. A new documentary celebrating the lifetimes and music of Desi O'Halloran will be screened on TG Cahar uh, on Christmas Day. Uh, Desi Glore Nabo Finya follows Desi's cousin and longtime collaborator John O'Halloran as he goes on a journey to find out about this enigmatic and quiet man from Inishboffin who found fame in later life with his collaboration with Sharon Shannon. Delighted to be joined by John O'Halloran on the programme this evening. And in some ways, John, that... Hello to the huge audience. Kind of summarises Desi's who he is and who he was. Well, for sure, a hard man to explain and a hard man to sum up in the in the documentary. Yes, but, yes. Uh, yes. So so it goes. We have it done, and uh, it was an interesting journey. So absolutely, um, as I said, a hard man to explain. Uh, you're you're his made cousin. famous and went up. Yeah, yeah, a cousin, yeah. You're his cousin, I'm John. His cousin. Yeah, so, yes, but there uh, is a there's a big age difference. Absolutely, yeah. There's 23 years between us, I suppose. And um, Desi would have left Inish Boffin at the age of 19. And I suppose I got to know him when he returned from London, hmm. really. I would have met him as a young kid coming back to Inish Boffin on holidays. And, of course, they... They were kind of when he when he when he did make it. He, he had played music in London, of course, then and stuff and all that, you know. And we were kind of looking forward to him coming home because it was kind of the boys from London were coming home to play. Himself and his brother played music over there, so uh, yeah. it was a big excitement for us because he spent a lot of time in our house as a very young kid as well. Yeah, I'm just wondering. In my I, parent- yeah, but I'm just wondering in terms of uh, you know that that early life of uh, Desi's on Inishbof, and this is before you were born, obviously. Since you know, yes. then there's 23 years before. So you were he, he when you, you you it was four years. You were born four years after he left to go off to London. That's right. But th- that's y- yes. that's that period. Really, what comes across in the documentary, and I'm wondering how much this was kind of a a, a, a revelation to you. How. There was no choice but for lots and lots of people at that time in the 50s. They just, they had to go. There was nothing else for them to do. Well, that's it, yeah. Especially in Inishboffin, you know. Um, that was it. As he said himself, when we were talking to him, everybody was leaving then. So there was nothing strange about that. But, you know, he left and just going through his stuff and all that. He was lonesome over there for a good while. Mm. And, you know, and 
I think the music helped him a lot. He met, he met, as he said himself, he met the finest musicians in London and uh, went on to uh, play music and start singing a lot more songs there. I mean, he was singing as a very young lad in, 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 mm. in Ishbotham, but I think his music kind of expanded when he met more musicians and stuff like that and got more into the music, of course. Yeah, let's have a listen and to he was let, play- let's have a listen to him to his own voice actually. He's just this is again it's quite close to the beginning of the documentary actually, John. And it's Desi himself yes. kind of in as much as Desi would ever explain, I'm guessing. But here he is explaining yes. a little bit about himself, who he is, and perhaps as more important in this is what Inish Boffin is and was to him. Let's have a listen. I was born here. Long time ago. Everybody was poor, but nice to one another. That time there was no tourists coming here. And that's the voice of Desi O'Halloran from the documentary yeah. Desi Glore and the Bullfinia. And the, the, the documentary kind of were guided through it by Desi's cousin John, who's who's with us on the program this evening. It, it we don't hear much of him, but that type of when he does say something, there's so much in that couple of sentences that he gives us there, John. Uh, he was he was a, a true island man, wasn't he? He was indeed, yeah. And he, like you know, he never drifted too far from it. He talked about it all the time. And I remember in, uh, we we interviewed uh, a guy that uh, this guy that was involved in music in London, and they recorded an album over there himself and his brother. Mm. And he was on about that. He was on about Desi, you know. And he used to hear him singing uh, these kind of uh, light-hearted songs. And then when they went to the studio to record some songs, Desi wanted to sing traditional kind of songs, you know. And your man was kind, of, your man Reg was a bit yeah. taken back because he thought it was very. Uh, popular in the pubs when he sang these light-hearted songs but when Desi went to the studio he wanted to sing traditional Irish songs yeah, and, and, in and, fact, and that, that never changed yeah yeah, that, that record was called The Men of the Island and it was really Desi and uh, Desi's brother Vince another cousin of right. another cousin of yours as well yeah. but they, yeah. the, the kind of the loneliness of and, and maybe this is a romantic notion from somebody who's not an islander <laughs> as I am and yeah. uh, well I suppose I'm a part of this island but you know it, yeah. it, that kind of romantic idea of the lonely island, island man who really carries a kind of sadness with him that certainly was there in the choices of songs that Desi sang in that in, particularly on that record The Men of the Island Yes, you know, and even yes, he had, and even even when he talked about about London and and Inish Boffin, he had he had this lonely tone in his voice all the time. Like I always found there was a sadness or a lonely tone in his voice, and that came across in the older songs that he did. And okay, when he did when he did then sing with Sharon, like it was a much more lighthearted thing, you know, with like the "Say You Love Me" and come down the mountains Kitty Daddy but with 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 the old traditional songs there was such a, lo- a lonesome tone in his voice like that was kind of sad for me in one way yes. but that was that's that's the way he did it you know yeah um but he, you mentioned uh, when he met up with Sharon that's this is Sharon Shannon how did that meet yeah. how did that meet meeting your minds because as musicians they just seem to to meld together and in fact Sharon refers to him as a friend very quickly not just a, a musical partner but a, a real pal of hers how did that meeting yeah. happen? Well, do you know what happened in Inishbofin? She came to Inishbofin, and uh, you know she was she was 
getting pretty famous at the time and she, you know, she was on top of her game at the time and uh, she came to Nishbotham and she met Desi and as he said himself, they kind of just hit it off instantly and she heard him singing and playing the fiddle, which she loved his fiddle playing as well, which people yeah. don't talk about much about his fiddle playing, but she said, she just heard him singing this song, Say You Love Me, and she just she just wanted to record with him. And she came to her manager and, and she said, look, at, they were doing an album at the time. And she said, look, I'd love to have this guy, Desi Hollerton, you should hear him, you know. And she talked to her manager about it and, you know, and said, well, I don't know, who's this guy and stuff. So, <laughs> and instantly she just kind of liked what he was doing and stuck with it. And she eventually got him to record. And the rest is... Yeah, history has this. Well, yeah. let's let's have yeah. a listen to a, a a bit of "Say You Love Me," and I mean, there's a real there's a, there's a there's a sound of Desi in here for sure, obviously, but there's a real sound, yeah, of, yeah. A real sound of Sharon Shannon. Let's have a listen to a little bit of "Say You Love Me." So that says Say You Love Me featuring Desi O'Halloran and, and John John O'Halloran Desi's cousin speaking to us this evening about this documentary that John has has, has fronted for TG Cahar um, and, and you, you get a sense of it there I, even when it starts and I know in the documentary there's a story in and around Galway Guard with this as well but it's the same kind of the same kind of feel off it as Galway Guard but this was a f- phenomenal hit for them at the time wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think at the time, uh, uh, Sharon's manager told me that when they were bringing that out, that, that album, they were the Galway Girl was recorded at the time, mm-hmm. and um, it was that was meant to be the hit. I think, as far as I know, and 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 Desi's song just seemed to take off. And we hear and it took we, a good. A, go ahead. It took a good few years after that before the Galway Girl became famous. If you know what I mean, and that yes. was a very famous song. Like, but you know, that's what happened at the time. And the other thing is, I, I think in the midst of that, after the singing of that first verse, we do hear Desi's fiddle playing. And I, like you, you said, people always talk about the singing, but the fiddle playing that he shows has an incredible quality to it. Did I hear somebody talking about the boffin bounce? Is, is, is that a technical term now for a style of music down in boffin? <laughs> yeah, well, there always there were always a great bounce to the music at home. You know, there was a you know there was a certain kind of a a good dancing feel to it. But I remember Sharon saying, and a few other people at the time, you know, were visiting musicians, always said that Desi had this old timey touch mm. to his, his fiddle playing. Yeah. Now, where he would have heard that in Nishbafan, I don't know. But but people would would refer to him as having that old timey swing to his fiddle playing. You know, because as I said, he wouldn't be known for a fiddle player, but. People loved it, and Sharon did, in particular, often said it to me. You know, she she loved his old timey swing to the fiddle playing. Yeah, there is, and and is, you, is it on his? Is it on the, the the record that he made a little bit later on? Then was it the Pound Road that he made with Donald Lunny? That has a bit of bluegrassy feel on it as well. In fact, it's all right. sorts of genres on it, really, doesn't it? it it's a yeah. really broad spectrum of of genres that he could dip in and out of. Yeah, yeah, he would, he was, he, he would go for it. He, he was, he was never shy. I, you know, even as a very young lad, my 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 uh, father told me that his mother used to ask him to sit up in the hall beside the fire and sing a song when he was about six or seven, and he had no bother going on the beside the fireplace to do his piece. You know, so I, 
he was ready for the stage even from that age. Yeah. And the other thing, <laughs> towards the end of the, the documentary as well, John, we get this sense of how supportive and how important it was for him that the younger generation of musicians were encouraged and, and brought along. How much of an encouragement was he to you in the exploration of your own music? Well, he was great because, you know, as I said to you, I got to know him really when he came back from London, eventually came back from London after spending 22 years there. And then I got to know him living in Ishbaf. And then I was I moved, I moved was living in Galway and he moved to Galway. And somehow or another, we just started doing gigs together. and it was just a howl every time we did a gig together. I mean, there was always some story at the end of the night, like, you know, of slagging. We did a lot of slagging each other. And, <laughs> you know, I remember him saying to me at one stage, you know, when he went to chart and I was playing simple gigs in Galway, sitting in the car, and he said, you know, in his, in his, in his, in his, in his, in his real Desi accent, they are sitting in the corner while I'm on the big stage with Sharon Shannon, you know, and there's always that kind of slagging going on, you know, so, Do you think you know him better now that you've made the documentary, John? Do you know who he was? Yeah, there, there was a bit more to find out about him, actually. It was interesting and, and sad in certain terms, but a great experience and did find out a lot more. We went to London and yeah. Stephen James Clennon, who was a was big part of this, yeah. Uh, who, who Desi always said to him, "When are you making the documentary about about yeah. me?" You know, and, and, it was kind of it was kind of requested. You yeah. know? Well, there you go, and now the documentary is made. <laughs> Lovely to have spoken yeah. with you this evening, John. Thanks for being with us. That's John O'Halloran and the documentary that John is talking to us about. Desi Glor and the Bofinia will be broadcast on uh, Ian Ullock Christmas evening on TG Cahar, ten twenty-five p.m. The poet Elaine Nichilinon celebrated two milestones recently. She turned 80 in November and she was elected a three of Isdana, an honour given to a total of seven members of the Official Association of Artists at any one time. She joins Edna O'Brien and artist Camille Souter, among others, in accepting the award. The Gallery Press has been publishing Elaine's work for 50 years now, so to mark Elaine's achievements, editor Peter Fallon asked 50 writers, from Victoria Kennefick to Colm Tobin, to choose one of her poems and write a short essay about it. The book, Second Voyages, is the result. Here, poet Enda Wiley reads Elaine's poem, The New Atlantis, and recalls where she first came across it. I first heard Elaine Quillnone read at a poetry event in the Mansion House in Dublin in 1996. So I'm giving away my age there. It was nearly three decades ago, and it was the launch of a CD about Dublin poems. And I was a young poet and it was my first time hearing Elaine read. And I was so impressed by this poem, The New Atlantis, that I think it's remained one of my favourite poems of Elaine to this day. It's a really beautiful poem. Some of your listeners may have heard it. Um, It's a poem, I think, which is really hypnotic and absorbing. And from the very first line, you're centred in Dublin in a particular day in June, in the summer. And as a reader, I instantly felt that it was a very visceral poem. It was a very sensuous poem. There's a huge graphic kind of beauty to it. It's uh, set in Dublin in, I have to say, not a very glamorous part of Dublin, actually. It's quite dilapidated. There's beautiful descriptions of blistering paint. And what I love about it is that she's quite level-headed as a poet, um, Elaine. She she brings you into it quite practically. And I think it was W.B. Yeats who said that a poet is never the bundle of accident and incoherence that sits down to breakfast. And I think Elaine Quill Nunn is far from a bundle of accident and incoherence when she writes this poem. It's very, very practically 
set. And then she takes you off on a journey. And I love that about her poetry. I think she has a very free imagination. She's willing to take the reader on an unexpected journey. And I, I really love that about the poem. I think as well, there's a huge mystery to it and a sensual quality to it and a, a great energy to it as well. It's very vivid. And it has stayed with me all through the years. And I'm delighted that the Collected Poems of Elaine has come out and that this book, Second Voyages, has come out because it, it kind of gave me a chance to write about it and to go back to the poem again and see it again in a new light. And it never fails really to impress me. I think it's got a huge magical energy to it. It's a very special experience to hear a poet read their poem. You you hear it in a different way, but then to see it on the page, it brings it further alive. And I really think that as poets, we want a poem to survive. And the way it's going to survive is on the page. And when you see this poem on the page, I, I hope that the, the listeners as well, when they see it or anyone who knows it, will realise the, the huge, unique kind of energy to it. So I think it's a very special experience to hear it, but most especially to read it. It's a huge privilege, I think, to, to have the collected poems and to read through her poems. And, and I love going back to the New Atlantis, which is actually from a very early collection. It's called, it's from Sight of Ambush, um, which was published in 1970. And I think the interesting thing about Eleni Quilnon as a poet is that her early poems came on the page very fully formed. I mean, you were talking about seeing it on the page. I don't think she started off as a poet who had to work her way up. She starts off very skilled as a poet. Um, and that's why it's wonderful to, to, to know that she's been publishing and writing for 50 years and that they've been such strong and brilliant poems from the very beginning. The New Atlantis. The feast of St. John Corpus Christi Sunday, houses breathing warmly out like stacks of hay, windows wide, the white and yellow papal flags now drooped. One side of the street nods at the cool shadow opposite, sloping towards the canal's green weed that reflects nothing. Turn a corner, nettles lap at a high hoarding, Sites for sale, empty window frames, corrugated iron in the arches of doors, old green paint softly blistering on gates. Cross a lane, a kitchen bare, darkening with one shadow milk bottle, then a bright basement, a bald man in his sleeves folding linen in a yellow room, whose lives bulge against me as soft as plums in a bag sagging at summer. New Atlantis presses up from under that blunt horizon, angles at windows like ivy, forces flags apart. And a Wiley there with the poem New Atlantis by Elaine Nicholanon and Second Voyages Writers on Poems by Elaine Nicholanon is published by Gallery Press. Kem is no surprise to people in music circles when just under two months ago British rapper Little Sims picked up the Mercury Prize for her fourth album Sometimes I Might Be Introvert. What did surprise many however was the follow-up released on Monday last called No Thank You and based on the initial critical reaction who's to say this one won't repeat the success of her her previous release. Let's have a listen to one of the tracks from the album with a little language warning before we start out. This track is called Gorilla.
Sim Sima, who got the keys to my blood clot? Bima, big time driller, monkey to gorilla. Who is this woman that I'm seeing in the mirror? Drink 42 and smoke cigar. Name one time where I didn't deliver. Silent figure. Love it, oh, yes, I think um, we will be looking forward to more of that. Gorilla, the title of the track from an album called No Thank You, but I think it should be called Yes Please. That is uh, the album that Sims released, or just our little Sims rather, released on Monday last. But that brings us to the end of Thursday's arena. Liam Murphy, Amandine Passadivine, and Paula Shields researched. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Liam Mullen was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Olin McGahn. Back with you tomorrow night here on RT Radio and we'll have the best albums of the year. That's what we have as one of our major items for tomorrow evening's programme. Looking forward to that enormously. Talk to you then.